0: Good morning again. Welcome again to Hiawatha. My name is Jesse. I am one of the elders here at Hiawatha. And one of the privileges of being an elder is getting to preach once or twice or three times a year. So welcome. And we are kind of in the middle, maybe a little farther along than the middle in a sermon series on John. And we're in John 12. So... We have reached the point now where Jesus has entered the last week of his life. So John 1 through 11-ish, it covers a period of at least a year, maybe up to three years. It's a long time. And now the rest of the book, except for a little bit at the very end, covers just one week of Jesus' life, the last week. His passion, it's typically called, his death, his resurrection. So we're going to dig into that this morning. The title of today's sermon is Jesus, Glory, Death, and Life, which is both an impressive title and the kind of title you give when you don't have something specific for the title (laughs) from the passage. So. So normally, when we do a sermon here, we'll read through the passage and then kind of walk through it. I'm only going to read the first half of the passage, and then we'll go through the first half. This first half is a little more of an introduction, a little shorter, and then read the second half and spend most of our time in the second half. So, John 12, 20 through 23. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So we're going to answer a few questions from this first section. Uh, The first question, why does it matter that Philip was from Bethsaida? So Philip is one of Jesus' 12 uh, closest disciples, and they come up from time to time in the gospel, but rarely does it talk about where they're from. So why does John mention that? Why does that matter? Why does John mention that the people coming uh, in this passage are Greeks? Why does that matter? Why does he say that? And then finally, why do the Greeks want to see Jesus? Which might seem obvious. You might think, oh, well, it's because Jesus at this point was famous and everyone wanted to see him. He was healing people and teaching in ways people had never heard before, and they were astonished when they heard his teaching. So of course these Greeks want to see him because they've heard of him. And that's partly true, but that's not actually the main reason they wanted to see him. And the main reason actually matters a lot and greatly shapes Jesus' response to their request in the second half of the passage. But some uh, three quick questions. So why does it matter that Philip was from Bethsaida? So Philip is actually a Greek name, not a Hebrew name. And Bethsaida was a place uh, kind of northeast from Jerusalem quite a ways. And it had both Jews and Greeks living there. So Philip was from a place that had Greeks living there. So he would have had, to some degree, some exposure to Greek culture, to Greek people. And we know from other, now we don't know this for sure, this part is guesswork, but we know from other parts of the Gospels that the different apostles had different accents based on where they were from. When Jesus is on trial right before he dies, Peter's there, and Peter's trying to deny that he was ever associated with Jesus because he doesn't also want to be put on trial and crucified. And some people around him are like, no, 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 Like, I hear you talking. You've got a Galilean accent. You must have been with Jesus. Why else would you be here? And he's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And they're like, dude, we can hear you talking. You're clearly Galilean. What are you doing? So it's possible that Philip had a certain accent from Bethsaida, that these Greeks were just drawn to him. It's possible because of his name, they would have recognized that that was a Greek name, that that's why they came to Philip the Apostle versus one of the others. Or maybe for some reason they knew he was from Bethsaida. So it could be any of those. And that ties in partly to why does John mention that they're Greeks? Well, part of it is this sense probably the fact that they're Greek is part of the reason they came to Philip versus one of the other uh, apostles. But also, Jesus is going to say in next week's passage, while talking about his crucifixion, he's going to say, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, meaning when I'm crucified, I'm going to draw all men to myself. All people are going to be drawn to me. Up to this point, uh, the Jews especially had kind of this idea that salvation was primarily for them. And yeah, some other people would get the benefit indirectly, but it was primarily just for them as a Jewish people, which was not God's original intention, if you go back to Genesis, but uh, that was how it had ended up and how they kind of thought of it. And so part of John mentioning that they're Greeks It's like a little foretaste or a little hint of the fact that salvation is no longer just for the Jews. It's going to go to all people. There are reasons that for most of Jesus' ministry, he ministered specifically to the Jewish people. That was to fulfill different prophecy and do different things, and that could be a whole other cool sermon. So we're not going to go into that. If you have more questions, uh, ask me later. Um, But there are reasons for this. But now, John's giving this little glimpse of, hey, this is what you've seen so far, Jesus and the Jews. But this is for all people. And here's a little hint. Here are some Greeks that uh, are coming to Jesus. So those are kind of the shorter questions. A little bit longer, why do the Greeks want to see Jesus? Now it says that they came up to worship at the feast. The feast it's talking about is Passover, one of the biggest celebrations in the Jewish calendar, celebrating uh, their deliverance from enslavement to Egypt. And Jesus is actually going to die on the Passover And he is going to now give them deliverance not just from Egypt, from a physical problem, but from sin and from death and from Satan, from spiritual problems, from bigger problems. And we'll talk more about that uh, in the second half of the passage. But the fact that they came up to worship at the feast means that these Greeks were God-fearing. So they weren't Jewish by origin, but they worshipped Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And so they were familiar with the Passover feast, familiar with different Jewish customs and things like that. So they come up and they want to see Jesus. But it's not just because Jesus was a very popular guy and almost everyone wanted to see him. It's not just because he did these miraculous healings of people's eyes, giving sight where there was blindness and their ears, letting them hear where they were deaf, and paralysis, making bodies work and walk that hadn't been able to do so before. And it wasn't just that he taught in ways that were so astonishing that people that heard his teaching would say things like, I've never heard anyone teach like this before. I've never heard anyone teach with this kind of authority. How does, like, where did this come from? Where did he get this? It's primarily, I don't have a slide for this, but last week's passage, if you've got a Bible or an app open, if you look at the three verses right before verse 20, verses 17 through 19, You see that in chapter 11, so a chapter ago, about a month ago in our preaching schedule, uh, Jesus had raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus had done lots of healings, but he had not yet raised someone from the dead. And he did that, and there were a bunch of people that saw that happen. And these people went out and started telling everyone, like, hey, you know that guy Jesus who's done these cool things? You won't believe what he did last week. He raised someone from the dead. What do you mean? Lazarus, this guy, he was dead. He was in the tomb for four days, and Jesus brought him back to life. And it says in the verses right before verse 20 that this crowd went out and kind of bore witness and was telling people about this. And because of that, the crowd wanted to see Jesus. So last week's sermon, the triumphal entry, the kind of Palm Sunday sermon, if you've been at a church around Easter time, you've probably heard a sermon on that passage, It says the entire crowd, when they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, rushed out to meet him with palm branches, basically praising him and yelling praise, and they're excited because he's coming and They think he's going to deliver them from Rome. But according to John, the main reason they're coming and the main reason that crowd was there praising him is because he raised Lazarus from the dead. And now these Greeks are doing the same thing. They're coming to Jesus because the power he has to raise the dead. Death is a big problem. Probably none of you in this room need me to tell you that. Many of you have probably experienced death. I assume not directly, since you're sitting here and you all look rather alive. But some of you have probably lost friends or lost family. Maybe parents. Maybe children. A spouse. Maybe some of you are sitting in this room and you actually have a terminal diagnosis. And you know that you're going to die maybe soon death is a big problem death is one of the three main problems in the bible as we look at the second half of this passage jesus is going to say a few things and you might read it and think well i can see how that's kind of true but is that really true like is that fully true and it is fully true in the context of death so there's a lot more to say about that but we're going to wait until jesus brings it up again and talk about it there But we'll come back to that idea of death. But just to acknowledge, death is a huge problem. Death causes a lot of pain. Death brings us a lot of fear, a lot of worry in different ways. When you came here this morning, if you came in a car, and you wore your seatbelt, why did you put your seatbelt on? Ultimately, because of fear of death. If you had no fear of death, no fear of harm, you wouldn't wear your seatbelt. When I go on a bike ride, I put a helmet on for safety. When I go walk down to the corner store, I don't put the helmet on because I'm not worried about falling and dying when I'm walking to the corner store. All right, let's move on. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now this phrase, Son of Man, for someone who is Jewish, would have a lot of weight behind it. And they would think of a specific passage in an Old Testament book of the Bible named Daniel. And in Daniel 7, Daniel's having this vision from God and he's seen things that are going to happen in the future, in his future. And let's read Daniel seven thirteen and 14 and see something that he saw. Daniel writing here, he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. The ancient of days is another name for God. the, time, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And Jesus, when he says Son of Man, is talking about himself. This is what most of the Jews would think. They'd think, ooh, he's the Son of Man, he's going to be glorified. I know what that looks like when he's given glory. It's in Daniel. It means he's going to be given dominion. He's going to be giving a, king, be giving a kingdom. Everyone's going to serve him. His dominion's going to last forever. This is great, because we're in Rome right now under Rome's rule. And Rome is not the kingdom of God. So that means this Jesus, he's about to come in and crush Rome. He's going to crush the Roman Empire. He's going to kick Rome out. We're going to get the promised land back, the land that was promised uh, to Abraham and to Moses and to David uh, th- hundreds and thousands of years ago. This is wonderful. Like, I don't know how he's going to do it. He's just one guy. But he's a pretty impressive guy. He's done some things I've never seen anyone else do. So if any guy can do it, he probably can. So that is what they thought glory looked like. They thought it looked like crushing the Roman Empire, getting back the promised land, the fulfillment of all these physical things that they wanted that were lacking for them. And it was going to be everlasting. So it was going to be like the kingdom of David and Solomon, but a thousand times better and a million times longer. It was going to be paradise on earth. So naturally, they're all rather excited about this. And then, Jesus keeps talking and uh, shatters their expectations of that. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now the second half of the passage. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So they've got this idea, oh great, glory, the Son of Man. And then it's like, ooh, and now you're saying all this stuff about death and about hating your life and following you. And you've said right now that you're on your way to Jerusalem to die. That's not really somewhere I want to follow you. Can I follow you after that somewhere else? So now all of a sudden this is confusing because the things Jesus is saying don't fit with their idea of what glory looks like, of, their, of what their salvation looks like. Let's, we're gonna look at each of these three verses separately and see what does it actually look like for the Son of Man to be glorified. How is Jesus glorified? Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus here is talking about himself. He's saying, you want to know what glory looks like? It looks like my death. And it looks like through that death producing fruit. And if I don't die, there won't be any fruit. Ephesians 2 says it this way, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you might ask, okay, Jesus dies, that brings fruit, but how does that happen? How does Jesus' death accomplish anything or bring us anything worth having? And it's because of his blood. It's like the song we sang, A few minutes ago we owed a debt that we could never afford that we could never pay off we owe a debt of sin we've sinned we've done wrong against God and we think to ourselves well sure I've done some bad but I'll do some good and it'll even out and God says that's not the way it works one you can't actually fully do good in the sense you think you can sure you can do things that are good in temporary or short-term ways Jesus even acknowledges that in the Gospels. He says, though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your kids. When they ask for food, you don't poison them. That's good. But he says, you're still evil. You can't fully do good. You can't do good in such a way that it counts for God on the scales. God says, all the good you can do, it's not enough. It's not worth anything except to be thrown out and trampled. We need Jesus. But it's not just sin. It's also death. Eventually, assuming Jesus doesn't come back first, we will all die. One of the few sure things in life. Jesus is a more sure thing in life. But death is a sure thing. Death is coming eventually. Maybe soon, maybe a long time from now. But without Jesus, without his blood, there's no hope of overcoming death. And the interesting thing is, Jesus doesn't say, come to me and I'll prevent death. He says, no, living comes through dying. Come to me, you'll still die eventually. But that's just a physical, temporal death. That's one moment, it happens and it's done. There's a worse death, there's an eternal death. There's a death that lasts not just for a moment, but forever. And I can save you from that. And I'll prove it by dying and raising from the dead to show that I have power over death, that death can't hold me, that death isn't stronger than me. This is where in the verse from Ephesians, it says, having no hope and without God in the world. And you might say, Jesse, I've got lots of hope in the world. I've got hope in this and hope in that. And sure, you might have small, temporary, short-term hopes in various things. And some of those hopes might even be realized and be satisfying in short ways. But this comes back to the idea of death. Without death, there really isn't long-term hope. Because no matter what you do and accomplish, no matter how satisfied you are in this life, you're going to die. And everything you have will be gone. Without Jesus, there is no ultimate hope. If you're without God in the world, you have nothing long-term to hope in and look forward to. But the great news in that, you might think, wow, I came to listen to that. This is all really horrible news. The great news is, that was all of us at one point. I wasn't born a Christian. There was a point in my past where I was without God in the world and had no hope. But God came to me, even though I wasn't seeking him, even though I didn't want him, he came to me because he loves me, and he saved me. And if you're in this room and you're a believer, he has done that for you. And still we sin, and still we struggle, and still we fear death sometimes. But still Christ loves us, still his blood covers us, still every day his mercies are new for us. And so if you're here this morning and you are without God in the world and you are without ultimate hope, the good news is that can change right now. You don't have to go to intro to Hiawatha and pass a test before you can become a Christian. You don't have to memorize a certain number of verses from the Bible. All that salvation means is your acknowledgement that there is a problem, the problem of sin, the problem of death. There are these problems that I can't fix on my own, that I can't attain what God requires. But I don't need to because Jesus attained it for me. And all I have to do is believe that that's true, that he did that for me. That's it. That's all it is. So how is Jesus glorified? Through his death, through his resurrection. Through that, it bears much fruit. Think about if Jesus had chosen not to die, and there's a whole bunch of like problematic theological things that flow out of that but saying all that aside for a second if Jesus had just been like no I'm not going to die all right, he's still God but now we're all without hope because without his death and resurrection we don't have anything we can't be reconciled to God we can't be freed of sin we can't overcome death because those things can only happen in him so if he says nope I'm going to remain alone then there's no fruit thank God And thank you, Jesus, that you did not remain alone, that you did die and that fruit was born. Because right now, today, we are here receiving the benefit of that. Next one. Oh, forgot about this. (laughs) So John 16, Jesus is going to be talking right before he dies and he's going to tell the disciples, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is saying for the disciples and for us, it's better for you that I'm not here with you physically. Now, in one sense, Christ is with us, no matter where we are. But in terms of like physically in the flesh, in his body, sitting here in a pew somewhere, it's better for us that he's not doing that. Have you ever thought to yourself, man, I wish Jesus was with me right now. Like, I know he's with me. But I wish, he, I wish he was like with me, with me. That he was sitting here and I could see him and I could talk to him and he could like instruct me or pray for me directly or encourage me. Have you ever wished that? I've wished that. But Jesus says here, actually, what we have is better. Because if we only add that, what we have is we have Christ, but it's not within us. And our problem is within us. You see that in the Gospels. Jesus is with the apostles, but they don't get it. No matter how many times he explains it to them, no matter how many miracles he performs for them, they don't get it. They don't fully believe. When he dies, their thought is not, oh, this is great, he's fulfilling all his prophecy. He's like, their thought is, oh man, we're in big trouble. Rome just killed him, and we were associated with him. We better go hide so Rome doesn't come and kill us too. It's only after Jesus goes away... And the Helper, which Jesus here is referring to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells believers. If you're a believer, you have God within you, not in some like worldly sense of like everything's God and God is within you. No, that's not what I mean. You have the person of God, the Holy Spirit within you. And that's better than having Jesus sitting next to you. Now, that desire to be with Jesus face to face is not. A bad desire in of itself that's part of the promise of eternity is that we will be with Jesus we'll see him face to face we'll be able to talk to him and touch him and laugh with him and cry with him but in that we'll still have the Holy Spirit within us and that's what will make that experience rich and joyful without the spirit within us there's no fruit now how is Jesus glorified Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. A somewhat problematic statement. You say, wait a minute, Jesus, I read the Bible and it seems like life is really important. Like what you're doing is creating and recreating and bringing life. You do it at the beginning of Genesis when you create all life. You're doing it here in the gospel when you talk about how you're going to bring spiritual life and raise us from spiritual death and recreate. You talk about the value of life in various places throughout the Bible. So there's all this talk about how life is this great thing, this important thing, this thing that you're doing, this thing that you're moving us towards as believers. And now you're saying, if we love our life, we lose it. And if we hate our life in this world, we keep it. That doesn't make sense to me. What does that mean? Well... Let's make it even more confusing and more offensive. Luke 14, 26, Jesus says something similar. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If anyone does not come to me and does not hate these people, does not hate his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Now there's a couple pieces to this. One, these are two verses where it's really important to understand the context of Scripture. We talk about that all the time, how taking individual verses out of context is problematic and often dangerous. There are a few that work well out of context, uh, but most of them don't. And these are some You really want some context and you're hoping that the context that's provided makes it mean something a little different and in one sense there will be some shift in meaning but in another sense when jesus calls you when jesus calls us he calls us to follow him and where did he go he went to calvary he went to the cross and he died a call from jesus is a call to death in some ways not physical death necessarily that might possibly happen to you not super likely here in the u.s at this time in history but it's possible sometime in your life he could call you to physical death but it's other types of death he calls us to but the thing is he calls us to follow him so we follow him and we get to the hill of calvary and we see him on the cross and then we realize he called us to follow not in the sense to do what he's done because we get there and we're like oh he already did it he already died and rose I can't do that for him. It can't be done again. And even if it could, I couldn't be the one to do it. So it's not the call, do everything I've done. It's the call, come be with me. But understand that that call involves dying. But Jesus here is speaking in a parable-like way to some degree. Not literally. And we know that from a couple different reasons. One, if you look at the Luke 14, he says that people coming to him have to hate uh, their different relatives. But Jesus demonstrates the opposite of that when he's hanging on the cross. He has an interaction with his human mother, Mary, and he doesn't hate her in that instance. He loves her. From John 19. So this is just three verses before Jesus dies. So like the last thing he does before he declares that he's completed his Uh, mission, what he came to do, and then he gives up his spirit and dies. But right before that, Jesus is on the cross, his mother Mary, a few other women, the Apostle John, uh, who is the disciple whom he loved in this passage, they're standing there watching him die. And it says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So at this uh, place and this time in the world, Mary, once Jesus died, there was no welfare, there was no social security. She just couldn't go out and get a job. She would be in big trouble. She wouldn't have a means to provide for herself. Jesus was the firstborn son. It was the firstborn son's responsibility to do that. So when Jesus dies, and then he's going to raise from the dead, but he's going to leave, Mary's going to be in a really bad position. So Jesus here, in love, makes sure that she's taken care of. Basically what he's saying here is, he looks at his mom and he says, Mom, John's going to take care of you for the rest of your life. And then he looks at John and he says, John, I'm about to die, and then I'm going to go away, take care of my mother for the rest of her life. And what does John do? It says that very hour, as soon as they leave the foot of the cross, John says, all right, you're like my own mother now. Come, come live in my house. I'm going to take care of you. Don't worry about your needs being provided for. Jesus here is showing an incredible act of love for his mother. So Jesus' statement about hating, if that was true, he wouldn't have done that for his mother. He would have ignored her or said, it's not my problem. I'm dying for the sins of the world here. I've got bigger things going on than you having food to eat every day. But Jesus shows her an incredible act of love. Besides the even greater act of love, he's also showing her by dying for her sin. You're like, all right, that makes sense. But then why does Jesus speak that way? Why does he say that? So in Mark 4, it says, speaking about Jesus, he did not speak to the crowds without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. So, whenever Jesus is talking to his disciples, sometimes he'll use parables, but then he'll explain things in clear language, like, no, this is what this means. You didn't understand it. But when he's talking to the crowds, he always speaks to some degree in parable-like language. Now, this may be like an actual direct parable, or it might be something like this. The statement, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life, which is not, a strict parable in the sense we think of it, but it has parable-like language. Jesus is taking the truth that he's speaking and wrapping it in this language that makes it a little bit veiled to people that are hearing it. And Jesus did this for a couple reasons. And it says the main reason he did it is so that he could control the timing of his ministry and his death and resurrection. It says there are times he spoke in parables so that people would not be able to understand what he was saying, so that later at the proper time he could reveal it to them he there were things he couldn't reveal to people too early in his ministry or the timetable would have changed and he wouldn't have died at the right time so he being god and in control of these things speaks in this way to kind of control the flow of information and understanding but it's not cruelty it's not that he doesn't want those people to understand it says yes he speaks in parables And makes it so they can't understand now. But he does it so that he can tell it to them later and they can understand. So John 12.25 is a parable-like statement. But with that said, there is still an element in the statement of loving your life leading to losing it and hating your life in this world leading to keeping it for eternal life. And notice Jesus doesn't say blatantly, blah, blah, blah. He doesn't say as a blanket statement, you have to hate your life. He doesn't say whoever hates his life. He says whoever hates his life in this world. In this world. Fortunately, we actually get an example of Jesus struggling with this temptation to hate his life. And love his life. We get this struggle. And this is a spoiler alert for next week. It's in next week's passage. Actually, it's the verses right after verse 26. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus is struggling with this very thing right here. He's struggling with this temptation to love his life. Father, save me from this hour. I don't want to die. I know what's coming. I know what crucifixion is going to be like. I know it's going to be physically painful. I know I'm going to take on the sins of the world and it's going to be spiritually painful. And I know that you, Father, are going to turn away from me and reject me because I will be come sin and you can't stand to look at that and have it in your presence and this is part of our plan this is the plan we made from eternity past but in this moment i'm afraid i don't want this to happen jesus is wrestling with this temptation to love his life should i remain alone should i not die should i be saved from this hour but He does make the choice to hate his life in this world and keep it. He says, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. He's like, no, this is the whole point of everything I've done in my ministry. This is what it's leading up to. This is the point I'm coming to, and now I'm here. I'm not going to walk away from it. Father, glorify your name. We also see, I don't have a slide for this, but Jesus, when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he has basically the same idea of the struggle with loving his life and hating his life in different words. And that's another really cool passage uh, that you can look up on your own time if you want. Uh, Just a great passage of showing Jesus' humanity and also how God God the Father is caring for Jesus in that and how he's willing to lay down his life and the salvation that brings. So a few words now for us on loving your life and losing it versus hating your life in this world and keeping it. One, loving your life and trying to keep it but ending up losing it is really lonely. Think about Jesus' words. If a grain of wheat doesn't fall to the earth and die, it remains alone. If you're here and you're struggling to love your life, to keep your life, if everything you're doing is to try and make your life as comfortable or as good or as pleasant as you possibly can, there's loneliness in that. Because eventually in that, There are times where you have to reject other people and do for yourself. There's a loneliness to that. Also, it leads to losing. It leads to losing. Either eventually death, the ultimate losing. But even in this life, if you're trying to love your life, if you're trying to work only for yourself, only for your own good, only to satisfy your own desires, there's losing in that. And we've all done that, and we all still do it, and we all know that it leads to losing. And a few words on hating your life in this world. Hating your life does not mean here, well, I might as well kill myself because my life doesn't mean anything, or my life isn't worth anything, or life is just this horrible, hateful experience. That is not what God means. Life is very valuable. Life is what God is bringing through salvation. But hating your life in this world means for a believer that you recognize that your temporal and physical desires here are not the most important thing. It's not wrong to desire those things to some degree. God says, pray to me in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of requests. Paul writes, God gives us all things for our enjoyment, not just for eternal joy, but for short-term pleasure, for enjoyment. That's part of why God has given things. But as believers, we recognize, and we fail to do this often, and we go back to sin or we go back to selfish desire, but in those moments where the Spirit is in control, in those moments where we see the cross clearly and see the gospel clearly, we recognize that the things of this world and the things of this life are not the most important things. And that sacrificing some of those feels like a huge deal in the moment. But in the scope of eternity, it's usually not that big of a deal. And we need Jesus for this. This is not something we can remember on our own or do on our own. We need Jesus to do this. Jesus himself struggled with this. Why would we expect we wouldn't? So as we struggle with this, as you struggle with loving your life and hating your life, cling to Jesus, cling to the cross. That's the solution to that. Finally, the final way Jesus talks about being glorified in this passage. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If you've been around Hiawatha at all, you might read this verse and say, Jesse, that sounds a lot like works. That sounds a lot like doing things. It sounds a lot like I have to serve Jesus for God to honor me. This sounds kind of contrary to what you said earlier in the sermon and what I hear you guys preach every week. It's a good observation. It does kind of sound that way. But we have to define following the way Jesus defines it. So an example Growing up, as a kid, our family vacation was usually going to the Boundary Waters. Uh, If you've never been, the Boundary Waters is a type of wilderness camping experience. So when you go, you spend a lot of the time on lakes in a canoe, and you paddle up and down these lakes. But between lakes, there's land. Canoes don't paddle so well over land. So you have to pick up the canoes and your other gear, and you do what's called portaging, which is just carrying your stuff over the land from one lake to another. So we were on a trip one summer, we're portaging, my dad, my brother and I were young enough that we didn't carry the canoes, so my dad's carrying the canoe, he's out in front and he's going and we come to this place where there's like this little grassy bog area with log pieces, a log that, a tree that's been cut into sections and turned sideways and they've made steps through this. So my dad starts going on these steps crossing the bog and he misses one of the trees. And so he goes in and he goes in up, uh, his left leg goes in up to his hip into this bog. And so he like throws the canoe off his shoulder and tries to balance himself and not completely fall into the bog and he doesn't. So he gets up and he's got bog goo, the technical term, all over his left leg and he retrieves the canoe and finishes up and notes which of these logs is the wobbly one. So now my, my brother and I, it's our turns to cross. And he doesn't say to us, follow me, I did it, now you do the same thing I did. Except for the falling in part. He comes and he helps us cross. He takes our hand and my mom behind us takes our other hand and they help us cross the logs because we're at that point too young and too small to safely kind of do it ourselves and they don't want to clean bog goo off of us for the rest of the day. So I followed my father in that instance but I didn't do it alone. I didn't watch him do something and then just copy it. I was with him. That's what following meant in that situation. It meant stay with him and he'll help me do the things I can't do. That's what it means when Christ calls us to follow him. He says, follow me. And so we do and we end up at the foot of the cross. And then we realize when we get there, I can't do this. And Jesus says, no, 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 you misunderstood what I meant when I said follow me. I didn't mean look at everything I did and then go do it yourself. I meant come be with me. Come be with me. And my spirit that I sent will empower you to do things that I've done, but not in your own power. And you'll have to cling to me in the gospel to do those. But even more than that, when I say follow me, you'll come and you'll see what I've done and you won't have to do it again. You'll just rejoice in the fact that I did it for you. What does it mean to serve Jesus ultimately then? To believe. To be with him. If you're sitting here this morning and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you believe that he's obtained salvation for him, that is an act of service to God. We will be honored for that. And what is the honor that we receive? The joy of being with him the joy of following him, the joy of being in his presence, both now in a non-physical sense, being with God, and someday in eternity to be with him forever, face to face. Jesus talks about this in John 17. Father, he's praying for uh, the believer, the disciples and the other people who are about to come believers after he dies and raises from the dead, but also praying for all believers in the future through history. So this desire he has he's actually thinking of us in this room and all the believers in the world today all over the world and all the believers who've existed between now and when jesus died and rose from the dead he says father i desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where i am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world as we close remember that jesus's greatest desire for you is that you would be with him, that you would come and receive the salvation he offers to you. He doesn't say in John 17, Father, I desire that they also who you have given me would go out and do a bunch of things for me, would go and tell a bunch of people about me, would memorize a bunch of the Bible, would be better people. Is it bad to read the Bible? No. Is it bad to tell people about Jesus? No. Is it bad to be a better person? Well, that's not something that's really possible apart from Christ. So that question is kind of a futile one to answer. But God's greatest desire, Jesus' greatest desire, is not those things. It's that we would be with him. Think of someone you love. As you're with them, and as you spend time with them, that love deepens, and you desire to spend more time with them. And then actions flow out of that eventually, and what those actions are differ depending on the relationship with the person you love. But that's what happens with Christ. He desires us to be with him. He calls us to himself. He brings us to him. And then we come to him. And then we're with him. And we see he loves us. And we see how much he loves us through his death and resurrection. And then our love for him grows because of his love for us spilling over into us. And actions flow out of that. But it's not actions of duty. It's not actions of, oh, I have to do this so I obtain something. So I retain my salvation. It's my responsibility. No, they're actions of love. They're actions of delight. If you're here this morning and you feel burdened by what you feel you have to do, know that the thing God is calling you to, the way to honor him, the way to serve him, is to be with him. Be with Jesus. Stop doing and be with him. And those actions will flow out of the being eventually. But don't focus on those. Don't think about those. Just be with him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you did not remain alone, that you did come, that you died, that you rose, that you saved us from sin, from Satan, and from death. I pray, God, for all of us that we would desire today to be with you. And if we don't, that you would give us that desire, that we would not feel we have to well that desire up on our own merit, but that you would bring that to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us and that you desire us.